U.S. Navy History, arriving. Welcome to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I am also joined by the venerable Exo Stephen. Hey, Stephen. Hey there, everyone. Venerable. Never called me that before. I'm trying out something new. I figured I'd uh, butter you up a little bit. Aw, how sweet. You're welcome. So, we are going to be starting the Peninsula Campaign in the Eastern Theater of the American Civil War area of operations. And this is pretty much just all Navy. Not like uh, when we went over the valley last time when it was just Army. So we'll actually have some more details that we want to go over. And it'll actually be a little more exciting because bigger guns. Yes. So, are you ready to get underway? Let's cast off. All right. So, George B. McLennan, he spends the winter of 1861 to 1864 training his brand spanking new army of the Potomac and also hiding from President Lincoln, who was telling him to advance against the Confederates. He's like, new phone, who dis? Terribly sorry, Lincoln. New telegram line. Give identity, please. Yes. Lincoln, he was very, very concerned about General Joseph E. Johnson's army sitting there at Centerville, which, as we all know, is just 30 miles from Washington. So Lincoln's like, I got an army breathing down my back. You want to do something about that? Mm. He thought about it. He's weighing his options. He'll come back to you later. Yeah. So McClennan overestimated Johnson's strength, and he changed his objective from his army to a army that was the capital of Richmond. He proposed to move his troops by water to Urbana, which is on the Rappahannock River, and then go overland to Richmond before, you know, Johnston could see what was going on and try to block him. Now, Lincoln, he was like, yeah, overland approach. I like that because it's going to draw everybody away from me and go after you. So I'm assuming McClellan ended up not going with that approach. Well, he was like, but Mr. President, the road conditions in Virginia are intolerable. I'm sorry. Are you complaining about road conditions in a state that doesn't have two seasons construction in winter? Get marching. Well, I mean, construction during this time for roads was pretty bad in the first place anyway. Everybody argued about every with everybody else who was responsible for upgrading and upkeeping the roads in the first place. The state was like, federal has to do it. And the federal was like, no, the state has to do it. So the state's like, okay, the municipality has to do it. And the municipality's like, no, the state has to do it. And it just keeps going up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. And nobody does anything. Uh, some things never change. Yeah. So McCallan also said that he had adequate defenses for the capital, 
but Johnson would come follow him if he moved to Richmond. So, you know, the plan is discussed for one month, two months, three months, until Lincoln finally goes, okay, this proposal you brought to me in March is adequate, but by the 9th, Johnston, he just takes his army away from Centerville and goes to Culpeper. So this makes McCullen's new Urbana plan impractical. So McCullen's like, well, crap. Well, why don't we sail to Fort Monroe and then up the Virginia Peninsula to Richmond? And Lincoln was like, fine. Just, you know what? Your breath stinks. Get out of my office. It's fine. Go. You know what? As long as it gets you out of my office and gets those troops moving, absolutely. Sail. March. Ride a horse. You know, ride your broomstick. I don't care. Just get going. Yeah. So, McCullen, before he leaves, he moves the Army of the Potomac to Centerville on a quote-unquote shakedown march. In other words... We're going to break you guys in. We're going to see what you're made of. Did did they not have boot camp for that? Or basic? You know, I don't think there was any real boot camp or basic training in this time. So back in the ancient days of yore of the 1860s, if you enlisted with uh, the U.S. Armed Forces, it was pretty much being thrown in the deep end of the pool. All right, here's your rifle, here's your kit, do what you're told, and we'll do fine. I mean... It's probably on-the-job training. I mean, while accurate, that's not exactly a good counterpoint. (laughs) Okay, so the first military training approach was done in 1888 in New York. Oh, boy. And this was to invoke discipline and keep the quote, inmates active rather than to simply allow them to suffer boredom and inactivity. Did they seriously call enlisted personnel inmates? That is what this website that I used real quick to try to figure out an answer of your question says that they are. Okay. And this type of training was actually apparently done up at until the 1920, when World War One changed everything. Well, we'll examine that more in another follow-up podcast of uh, U.S. Military Training Podcast. The History of Boot Camp Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. So, back to Johnston. Now that they were on their shakedown march, they went up to where Johnston's force had been, and sees that that position is actually a very, very weak position. And that meant he also faced a lot of criticism for not going up there and doing what the president pretty much ordered him to do in the first place. So two days later, Lincoln comes up, says, McKellen, you're fired. I mean, can't really argue with that logic. All he's been doing is, uh, standing around saying, I'll do this. No, I don't want to do that. I'll, we'll, we'll do this instead. But they have guys there. What if we instead do plan C? I think he has exhausted the alphabet at this point. Yeah. So 
that means that Lincoln, with the assistance of the Secretary of War Stanton and a board of war officers, they took command of the Union armies for the next four months. So the Army of the Potomac begins to move for Fort Monroe on the 17th. And of course, because of all this upheaval in leadership, there's a lot of concern that these boys have. This time and place also marks the first combat between ironclads, March 8th and 9th, versus the CSS Virginia and the USS Monitor, which means we're getting into that here with uh, the peninsula. Awesome. This is going to be when we cover the Battle of Hampton Road, which uh, will be the first battle we cover after going through the overview. So the army was looking at, you know, the ironclads and going, you know, our transport ships are directly in their path. So they're a bit concerned for their safety. Yeah, considering how ram-happy the Confederates are at this time with ironclads. Yeah. I can understand where they're coming from. So, once Lincoln and all these guys were like, this guy's job was hard. We can't, you know, lead campaigns to, hey, McClellan, you, you take over the Army of the Potomac, but that's all you're doing. It's just that <laughs> army. So, he goes in there, and he tries to get assurance from the Navy that they could protect him and his people. And, you know, the Navy wasn't very assuring. So his idea of amphibiously surrounding Yorktown was just, he gave up on it. And he orders a advance up the peninsula to begin April 4th. So the next day, McClennan is informed that Lincoln, he told Major General Irving McDowell, to stop moving don't go to fort monroe because mcclennan screwed up again he did not leave the number of troops that he told me he was going to leave here at washington he's leaving me undefended again oh mcclellan and of course jackson's making a lot of noise in the area so you know i get the feeling that mcclennan and lincoln don't like each other very much not at all. In fact, I, I think around 1864, uh, they're going to like each other even less. But spoilers. <laughs> uh, you know, McClennan, he's like, you know, dude, you want me to do a major campaign, but you're not going to give me the men I need to do it. <laughs> I'm taking them. Bye. See ya. So they advance to Yorktown and stop there when McLennan finds that the Confederacy put up fortifications across the entire peninsula instead of just there in Yorktown. So it takes him about a month to build up siege resources. He constructs trenches and siege batteries and, you know, Send some men in to poke at the line a little bit. <laughs> and then the siege of Yorktown was ready to go. 
Johnston, after seeing all of this get prepared and McLennan standing there going, time to siege, boys. Johnston, he's like, my defenses suck. Uh, I have no confidence that we're going to be able to hold off a Union assault. So, guys, when darkness comes down, we're leaving. And if I'm looking at this map correctly, it looks like the blue arrows sent the dotted red arrows running back like 10 miles. Yeah. So the blue arrows also seize Hampton Roads and occupy Norfolk. As the blue arrows chase the red arrows up the peninsula in the direction of Richmond. Blue being the Union, red being the Confederacy. <laughs> I know you know, but I'm just making sure the audience knows that your silliness extends to them. It's called it's called a joke. <laughs> I know, I was keeping it going. The one-day battle of Willingsburg then takes place around Fort McGuire, about one mile east of the old colonial capital. But this was an indecisive battle. Nobody could take credit for winning that one, although I'm sure all of them did. <laughs> he lost. No, you lost. No, I think somebody else lost. All I know is I won. I'm the winner. So by the end of May, the Union forces had advanced to within several miles of Richmond. But, you know, slowly, McClellan had planned for a huge siege. And so he brings a huge amount of equipment and stores and siege materials. But, you know, moving that amount of stuff on those crappy roads and bad weather. Slow going. Yeah. And, of course, McClellan was by nature cautious. So he's one of these guys that are like, should we just sit here? Should we attack? Should we run away? <laughs> I don't know, guys. Let's uh, think about this for, you know, half a year. Oh, please tell me you're kidding. Well, yeah. Oh, okay, okay, sorry. I mean, At the rate this has been going, it, half a year, I, I, it's not outside the realm of possibility at this rate. Well... To be fair to McClennan, and, you know, we really shouldn't be, he was under the mistaken information that the force he was going up against was twice his size because of his imagination and his intelligence that he received from the people who were feeding him intelligence. Well, let me rephrase that because that sounded really screwed up that I was calling him an idiot. <laughs> and because of the military intelligence he was being fed. Uh, military intelligence. What an oxymoron. So, in fact, in actuality, he was about twice as big as the people he was going after. Now, Johnston, he was very smart. As he retreated, his forces did deceptive operations. For instance, there was a division under John B. Magruder, and he was an amateur actor before the war. So 
he was able to fool McLennan by marching small numbers of troops past the same position multiple times <laughs> to make it seem like he had a huge force. I love it. Yeah. So as the Union draws towards the outer defenses of Richmond, it became divided because of the Chickahominy River. This weakened the army because having to move troops back and forth along front uh, over the water. So McLennan keeps most of his army north of the river because he expected McDowell to come from North Virginia from the south. So the Confederate president, Jefferson Davis, and Robert E. Lee, who was acting as his military advisor, he pressured the Confederate army to attack the smaller force on the south side of the river, hoping that the river being flooded because of the recent heavy rains would prevent McLennan from, you know, hopping over the river and decimating them. Ended up not working out so great. Well, this becomes the Battle of Seven Pines. As opposed to the Battle of Six Pines. Well, you could say it's also the Battle of Fair Oaks, if you don't want to do the number thing. That's a lot more poetic of a battle name. But this battle happened because Johnston had faulty maps. His Confederate army was attacking uncoordinated and those reinforcements that he was hoping the river would stop mm -hmm. because of the flooding flooded across the river. Oh, dadgummit. The battle, tactically, inconclusive. But there were two strategic things that happened. One, Johnston was wounded, and so he is replaced by a much more aggressive guy. You know the name. Robert E. Lee. I have a feeling he'll be coming back several times over this story. Yeah. And then the second thing is McLennan chose to abandon his offensive and just do a siege and wait for reinforcements that, uh, you know, he keeps asking his frenemy Lincoln for. <laughs> And because of this, he really never regains any momentum. Lee uses McLennan's pause to fortify the defenses of Richmond and extend the defensive works south of the James River to pretty much a point below Petersburg, which means that the total length of this new defensive line was about 30 miles. Oh, goodness. That would probably take uh, half a day or so to communicate from one end of the line to the other then, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would take quite a long time. And so Lee also, you know, liking the way that actor did his business, he's like, that's a good idea. I'm going to use that. <laughs> and he buys more time to complete his defensive line and to prepare for his own offensive by 
taking small numbers of troops and making them look bigger than they actually were. He also orders Brigadier General J.E.B. Stewart and his cavalry to ride completely around the Union Army to see if the right flank was vulnerable. And, of course, Lee also orders Jackson to bring, you know, all his forces for for reinforcements. And then, of course, McLennan, during this time, he just takes most of his forces further south, pretty much only leaving, like, a, like a division or so north of the river. Hmm. Yeah. So, Lee then moves to the offense. And he leads a number of battles that lasted seven days. And he pushes McLennan back to a position on the James River that McLennan could not threaten him from. So McLennan, he tries to siege up again and loses the place where he wanted to siege up. And so he tries to attack again, but then got distracted because there was a Confederacy attacking Mechanicsville. And that was like, he's like getting really confused now. <laughs> Lee is everywhere. Lee then sees McKellen's position straddling the Chickahominy River and is like, I can take him out. That is a really bad position. So he plans for diversion at AP Hill to, you know, pretty much distract Porter's front while Jackson marches behind the Union positions and comes in from the rear. Unfortunately, Jackson was moving slow, so he gets there late. So when the attack started... The distraction was repulsed really badly with very heavy, heavy casualties. Oh, that's never a good thing. Right. Now, this is technically a tactical victory. McLennan, he's like, doesn't matter. We're still retreating. And he keeps going south. He tells Porter, come on, come on back, come on. <laughs> So Lee continues his offensive at the Battle of Gaines Mill on June 27th. And this is actually the largest Confederate attack of the war against Porter's line. This attack was poorly coordinated and the Union was actually able to hold for most of the day. But, you know, when you keep battering at them, eventually they're going to break through. And McKellen saw one little fingernail crosses lines. It was like, pack it up, guys. We're out. Run away. Run away. And he goes towards Harrison Landing on the James River. Next couple days, you know, just minor skirmishes as McClendon continues to run and Lee attempting to cut him off and obliterate him. Now, because of Jackson at least according to Lee, Lee failed to cut off the Union Army before it could reach the James River. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Stonewall Jackson's like, 
you're just mean. <laughs> but, you know, shit rolls downhill. So the last battle on July 1st, this happened with uncoordinated Confederate assaults against the Union defenses. We've been seeing this a lot. Uncoordinated attacks. Yeah, it is a repeating pattern. Yeah. And of course, now that they were on the James River, there were, in addition to artillery placements, there were naval guns uh, from the James River Squadron. McLennan, he's like, hey, you guys, you you, st- you stand here, you fight. <laughs> I'm going on the boat. I'll catch you a little bit later. Have fun. Bye-bye. Yeah, he goes over to the gunboat Galena. So that means that the Union Corps commanders, the, the, the guys that are in charge of the separate divisions, yeah, they got to choose their own positions. They got to work together to choose their positions. But, of course, you know, none of them got to be the big boss. Well, heavens, only one person can be big boss. And then he was hiding on a boat. So this attack by the Confederacy, they suffer 5,600 casualties. The Union, 3,000 casualties. Now, McLennan's just sitting there looking over the rail, peeking with the spyglass, going, okay, what's going on, guys? Ooh. Retreat. <laughs> Run away. Yeah, the, his his commanders on the ground, they were like, we can totally do this. But McLennan's, you know, shaking back there on the boats, like, no, we can't retreat. And they have to retreat back to Harrison's Landing. But, I mean, this was the end of the Seven Days Battles and the Peninsula Campaign in itself. The Army of the Potomac withdraws to the safety of the James River, protected by, you know, the Navy. And they stay there until August when they are ordered to withdraw by Lincoln in the run-up to the Second Battle of Bull Run. Now, McLennan, he stays in command of the Army of the Potomac, but Lincoln is pissed. So instead of giving him his old job back, he gave it to Major General Henry W. Welkick as General-in-Chief of the Union Armies. So for this entire Peninsula campaign, the Confederacy suffered about 20,000 casualties out of a complement of about 90,000. McLennan had 105,000. And his casualties were 16,000. So a bit of a meat grinder for both sides. Yeah. Now, the morale suffered heavily because of McLennan. But on the other side, on the Confederacy, even though, you know, Lee did not really have his footing yet as a commander, the morale skyrocketed because, you know, McLennan ran away. And this, of course, emboldened Lee to continue being as aggressive as he could. So that was the Peninsula Campaign. You enjoy that? Well, I didn't not enjoy it. It did sound an awful lot like a a meat grinder, as you were saying. Just slow, advancing, a lot of people dragging their feet. Yeah, it, it was not fun for them. But now we get to get into the battles. And as 
I promised you first one up is the Battle of the Hampton Roads. Woohoo! So the Confederate chain of command was weird. How so? So Lieutenant Caspi, Roger Jones, had directed much of conversion of Merrimack to Virginia and was not named her captain. He was disappointed in that. Jones stayed on board the Virginia, but was only her XO, like you. What do you mean only? I provide a very valuable <laughs> job to this ship. Now, ordinarily, this ship would have been led by a captain of the Confederate States Navy to be determined by, you know, the seniority system that's in place. But Secretary Mallory wanted a very aggressive man named Franklin Buchanan. Now, there were at least two other guys that had seniority that had applied for the post. But, you know, Mallory, he just appoints Franklin. Like, no discussing it among folks, just like, hey, here you go. Enjoy the job. I believe in you, champ. Yep. Well, he does so in a way. He appoints him as the head of the Office of Orders and Detail, flag officer in charge of the defenses of Norfolk and the James River. This allowed him to control the movements of Virginia. So, technically, the ship went into battle without a captain. Whoops. I mean, the XO's there, right? You, you just said. Yeah, but captaining and, you know, helping run are two very different things. <laughs> oh, now comes the backpedaling. So, on the blue squiggly side, command of the North Atlantic Blockading Squadron was the flag officer, Louis M. Goldsboro. Now, he made a plan that he wanted his frigates to engage Virginia, hoping to trap her in a crossfire. Now... Of course, this plan breaks down when four of the ships run aground. One of them on purpose. Were they worried they were going to be captured, or...? I'm sure that monkey see, monkey do. <laughs> Three of them did it by accident, and the fourth one said, Well, since they're doing it, I'm doing it too. That looks fun. Yeah. So on the day of the battle, Gernsboro was actually gone. He was on the Burnside Expedition in North Carolina. So in his absence, leadership falls to his XO, Captain John Marston of the USS Renault. So this was an XO on XO fight. Seems like. You feeling a little bit better now? No, no. I was going to say this is why you should never leave me in charge, because if I run into another XO, then I have something to prove that I'm better than their XO. <laughs> was that what the captains are doing anyway yeah fair point thank you <laughs> now marston's ship the roanoke this is one of the boats that ran aground so he's unable to materially influence the battle and so his participation is often you know just whatever dude yeah you helped you help by standing there with your thumb up your butt. And every little bit does help. 
Yeah. So most accounts say that the guy front and center of this was the captain of the monitor, John L. Warden. So the battle begins when the CSS Virginia steams into Hampton Roads on the morning of March 8th of 1862. Captain Buchanan, he's like, I'm going to attack as quickly as I can. Now, Virginia has with her the Raleigh and the Be and the Beaufort and is joined there on the James River by the James River Squadron, the Patrick Henry, the Jamestown, and the Teaser. So when they started going past the Union batteries at Newport News, Patrick Henry is actually temporarily disabled because they took a shot into the boiler. Oh, yeah, that, that's not somewhere you want to take a cannon shot. Yeah, this actually took out four of her crew. But she's repaired and then returned to the rest of the group. So the Union Navy had five short, had five warships and several support vessels. They had the Sloop of War, USS Cumberland, the Frigate, Congress. These were anchored in the channel near Newport News. The Frigate St. Lawrence and the Steam Frigates, Roanoke and Minnesota. They're near Fort Monroe, and with them is the store ship USS Brandywine. We've heard that name before. Mm-hmm. Now, these three got underway as soon as they saw the Virginia coming up at them, and pretty much immediately ran aground. Oh. Yeah, so St. Lawrence and Renault didn't do anything else during this battle. So the Virginia, she heads directly for the Union Squadron. The battle starts when the Union tug, Zouave, fires on the advancing Confederacy, advancing Confederate Navy. And Beaufort, of course, says, I see that and I raise you my guns. <laughs> now, this, you know, opening shots pretty much didn't affect anything at all and virginia she stays quiet and does not open fire until she is in very close range of the cumberland the cumberland and congress meanwhile are firing ferociously at her and all of those shots are just bouncing off of her iron plates not penetrating her armor at all so virginia rams the cumberland below her waterline and the Cumberland, she goes down quickly. According to Buchanan, quote, gallantly fighting her guns as long as they were above water, unquote. She took 121 men down with her. And when the wounded is put into that figure, they had 150 casualties. Oh. Now, the ramming did almost take out the Virginia, though. Because the bow got stuck in the Cumberland's hull. And as the Cumberland listed and began to go down, Virginia almost went with her. So one of Cumberland's anchors was hanging directly above the foredeck of Virginia. And this, if this anchor had come loose, 
it would have locked both boats together even more and definitely would have taken them both down with them. Before that happens, though, Virginia is able to break free, but loses her ram as she backs away. So now she got no ram. So it just got dislodged and stuck in it? Yeah, it broke off into her. Oh, oh, there's a joke here. But I, I will rise above. You do that. <laughs> <laughs> so Buchanan, he then turns the Virginia to Congress. Now, Lieutenant Joseph B. Smith is captain of the Congress, and he saw what just happened. So he says, that ain't happening to me. Ground the boat. <laughs> they aren't sinking us. I will beach us. Yeah. So by this time, the James River Squadron arrives. This is captained by John Rudolph Tucker. And they join the Virginia, their attack on the Congress. And, you know, after about an hour of taking a pounding, the Congress t puts up the white flag. So the survivors of the Congress are now being ferried off the ship when a Union battery on the North Shore opens on the Virginia. Buchanan looks through the little, you know, slit that they, that they can use to, to see what things are happening on the outside of the hole. And he's like, I don't like that. You know what? Load a hot shot. <laughs> Hit the Congress with it. So Congress now catches fire and burns for the rest of the day. About midnight, the flames reach the magazine, and she explodes. The losses of this was 110 killed, missing, or, you know, presumed drowned because nobody swam. And there were 26 other wounded, 10 of whom passed away within days. So, you know, Virginia, she took some damage, but nothing like she had given. Shots from the Cumberland and Congress and the shore battery had riddled her smokestack, which reduced her speed. Two of her guns were disabled, and a number of armor plates were now loose. She did have two crew killed and a few wounded. One of the wounded was Captain Buchanan himself. He got hit in the thigh with a rifle shot. The sniper in the crow's nest was doing their job that day. Yeah. I mean, but he's wounded, not dead. So he, he's still going to be effective. So now the James River Squadron, they turn their attention to Minnesota. This is the boat that had left Fort Monroe to join in with the battle. And they accidentally, accidentally <laughs> ran aground. So... After Virginia had finished with the Congress, she rejoins the James River Squadron in pursuit of the Minnesota. But because of her deeper draft and the tide going out, the Virginia was not able to get close enough to be effective in that barrel shoot. But once the rest of the squadron get there, that's when full dark falls and they can't see nothing. So that prevented the 
squadron from being able to really aim worth anything. So they were like, well, we can't see nothing. Bed? Bed. Let's go to bed. So Virginia leaves with the full expectation that they were coming back the next day to destroy the Minnesota. She goes off to Sewell's Point for the night. The At the end of the day, she had killed 400 to her two. The Union had two ships lost and three run aground. Now, this is the United States Navy's greatest defeat and will be the greatest defeat until, you know, we get to 1942 or no, 1941. Some, some international incidents. Yeah. So Lincoln, he gets his cabinet together to discuss what just happened. And the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, that, you know what? The Virginia might be on their way here right now. They might shell us before we're even done with this meeting. Might be time to run. <laughs> now, Wellis is there, and he assures everybody that, no, this guy is a complete moron. We are safe because that boat can't even come up the Potomac River. And guess what? We have an ironclad, too, and it's heading towards them right now. We're fine, guys. We're good. Are they fine? Are they good? You want to find out? I kind of want to find out. Well, tell you what, we're going to find out next time. Leave me on a cliffhanger, man. We are going to definitely leave you on a cliffhanger. Because I just glanced over at the recording time, and we are at an hour. No. Yes. It just clicked over. Wow, time flies when we're having fun. <laughs> no, jeez. All right, so we are partnered up with Hero Cards, where we honor one of our fallen heroes after every episode. So today we're going to honor Manuel Reyes Denton of the United States Navy. He was born in San Antonio, Texas on June 18, 1941. When he was a young man, his mother became ill and was hospitalized, and Denton was sent to live with his grandmother in Seguin, Texas, which is about a 40-mile drive east of San Antonio. There, he attended Joe F. Sagert Junior High School and spent his free time helping the local sheriff train trick-performing horses. Well, that's kind of cool. Yeah. So after his mother recovers... He rejoins her in Kerrville, and then he attends Trivi High School, where he meets his future wife, Esmeralda. So Manuel enlists in the U.S. Navy and graduated from Field Medical Service School in December of 1962, where he is trained in emergency medical treatment under combat condition. As a hospital corpsman in the Navy, he also received some basic infantry training similar to that of the Marines. The Marine Corps do not have their own medical personnel. The Navy is their medical personnel. Really? Yes. So wherever the Marines are, there's going to be a corpsman with them, and that's a Navy corpsman. I did not know that. Yes. 
So he's assigned to Fleet Marines Force Pacific, 1st Marines Air Wing, Marine Air Base Squadron 16, HMM Attack 361. He held the rank of Petty Officer 3rd Class. Now, HMM Tech 361 was a U.S. Marine Heavy Helicopter Squadron known as the Flying Tigers, based at the Marine Corps Air Station in Miramar, San Diego, California. In Vietnam, the squadron flew dangerous missions, often in combat conditions, in a UH-34D Choctaw helicopter. On October 8, 1963, Denton's helicopter with a crew of six was sent into an area 43 miles west of the city of Da Nang in Quang Nam Province, Vietnam. They were part of a SNR mission, search and rescue, for two downed pilots. Under intense enemy ground fire, Denton's helicopter was hit and went down. There were no survivors. Four of the six crew members' remains were recovered and identified, but the remains of Denton and his fellow crew member, Lance Corporal Luther E. Richley Jr., could not be found despite a thorough search within a 250-yard radius. Denton and Ritchie were listed among the unaccounted-for servicemen from the Vietnam War, MIA. So between 1991 and 2000, several teams led by the Joint POW-MIA Accounting Command, or JPAC, traveled to Quang Nam Province to investigate the incident and interview witnesses. Joint teams from the U.S. and the Socialist Republic of Vietnam surveyed the crash site and found wreckage consistent with a UH-34D helicopter. More than 44 years later, the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency was able to identify Denton's remain, and he was listed by the U.S. Department of Defense as accounted for on May 14, 2008. And his crewmate, Lance Corporal Ritchie's remains, had been identified in 2003. HM3 Manuel Reyes Denton left behind a wife and three young daughters. He is honored at the Vietnam Memorial. He is honored at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. His name inscribed on panel 01E, line 29. He is buried alongside his fellow crew members at Arlington National Cemetery, section 60, grave 8656. Manuel Reyes Denton gave his life coming to the rescue. HM3 Denton, thank you. To learn more about Hero Cards, you can do so at herocards.us. Also check out their Grateful Nation project where they're trying to help educate children about our heroes. And that is at herocards.us forward slash school. All right, XO. You want to take us out? Absolutely. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the U.S. Navy History Podcast. If so, we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can leave a comment on whatever podcast service you are currently using. You could also reach out to us using email at usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We do have a Twitter handle. You can reach out to us using that platform with at usnhistorypod. And, in the notes, you'll find a link to our Discord server if you'd like to engage with us more directly. Until next time, we wish you fair winds and following seas. Bye-bye. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. (laughs) 